Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. I'm your host, Sarah Avery. Today, an exit interview. From time to time on Vox Tablet, we've had the great pleasure of speaking with Andy Bachman. Andy is a rabbi who just left a pretty big job with a pulpit at Congregation Beth Elohim. That's a reform synagogue in Brooklyn that claims Chuck Schumer and Jonathan Safran Foer, among other bold-faced names, as congregants. He's also just a smart, thoughtful, and nice guy in general. He's got a lot of insight into contemporary Jewish life. So we thought it would be a great time to invite him on the podcast to talk about the state of the Jews as he sees it, what some of his challenges were like as a rabbi, and where he goes from here. Andy Bachman, welcome back to Vox Tablet. Hello, Sarah Avery. So, Andy, it's September practically. It's a time of great transition for everyone. People are coming back from vacation. The weather is getting cooler. Kids are going back to school. Of course, we have the high holidays upon us practically. Why do you say it in that order? Why you, it's, always, it's always the Jewish thing comes like way at the end of the list. Here we go. The, the fate of the contemporary Jew. <laughs> well, you know, and it's a time when people stop and they ask themselves – what have I done in the past? What do I hope to do in the future, both for myself personally, for my community? This year for you, it's a big change. I mean, you're not in the mode right now of gearing up for high holiday sermons. And also you have a personal change. Your eldest child has just left for college or is leaving for college. How are you handling all these transitions in your own life? Uh, life is one big transition, Sarah. It really is. Um Preach. Preach, you know, I, it is. It's just one big metamorphosis. Uh, you know, I'm sounding a little bit like Siddhartha staring at the river, but um, it's true. So transitions are just the normal course of life. So how I'm handling it, I'm trying to be as reflective as possible. Um, grateful for all the experiences I've had uh, in my in my prior existence, and just really excited and looking forward to uh, a, a new phase of existence, which is is cool. How long actually were you the rabbi at Beth Elohim? Um, a little bit more than nine years. So typically this time of year until this year, what would you have been doing right now in the run-up to the high holidays? Um, well, if I were honest, I'd say I'd be procrastinating <laughs> writing my sermons, uh, pretending that I knew exactly what I was going to talk about. Um, and I'd be doing which is what I usually do at this time of year is just a lot of study, uh, kind of preparing my mind for uh, the conversation back with the generations of the sages who struggle with all the themes of the holidays, chuva, repentance, and forgiveness, and, um, you know, just thinking about the condition of, of the Jewish people. I think it's something that weighs on everyone's mind. You know, the, the Yom Kippur liturgy uh, is so rife with a sense not only of personal repentance, but where the people are at vis-a-vis -vis their relationship to God. So uh, immersing myself in those ideas this time of year is, is a normal thing. Um, so, you know, I'd be jotting down notes manically and then pushing everything off until the absolute last minute and trying to crank out some sermons. Of course, those are the kinds of things one doesn't have to be a rabbi to engage in. So I wonder to what extent are you doing that kind of self-reflection now anyway? Yeah, I got a new set of tefillin this summer in Jerusalem. And um, I'm I'm praying in a way in the morning that is very, very different. Uh, I usually take the stories of so many different people's lives with me into that space. And it's much more somber, much more individual, and it's more of a daily conversation with family and my own personal familial ancestors that kind of I'm in communion with, teachers. So it's it feels like a more private place of reflection as opposed to thinking broadly about 
about the community and the needs of the community. Is that uh, do you think that will be something you miss thinking about the broad needs of the community, or are you enjoying the kind of intimacy that you're now able to uh, indulge? Hmm. Well, if I were honest with myself, which Please. why the hell not? Yeah, you know, not? <laughs> if I were honest with myself, I'd say that. You know, here's what I noticed about leaving the pulpit. Uh, the, the responsibility of walking around the city with a sense of uh, at any moment you can be called upon to be responsible to someone else um, buys you time away from spending too much time on yourself. And there's, of course, always a balance, right? One doesn't want to become a, you know... A ridiculous narcissist. But what is interesting is that you, you do have to ask yourself for yourself what really matters. Uh, and you have to face yourself in, in ways that you no longer have, I'd almost say, the luxury of losing yourself in others. Um, and that was probably one of the biggest adjustments to make. The moment you the moment I resigned, for instance, and I, I've had this conversation with a lot of rabbis. You know, the lame duck status is, is so intense and so real, and and you you realize to a certain degree that you you have you've almost broken a relationship with people where they realize, okay, you're not going to be that for me anymore, and so I need to find that in someone else, and that's completely understandable. But then it means that you have to kind of reorient yourself to what your relationship is to. Uh, the title rabbi and your relationship is to those people who are now seeking spiritual leadership in another individual. So it requires self-reflection and work. This is a very serious conversation, Sarah. It is. We've, we've, just, we've just gone there. <laughs> How about a joke? No. Yeah. Well, let me ask you a lighter question, perhaps. <laughs> I think of other people in leadership positions, for instance, Barack Obama, who in some ways is – he's in your peer group. You know, you're both relatively young men. Mm -hmm. And he's going to be leaving his job, you know, in a year or so. Uh -huh. What would you advise for him next? Um, well, get a new set of tefillin. <laughs> I think that might help, you know, certain people on the whole Iran question. You know, oh, look, he's wearing tea as a Seder. He puts on tefillin. <laughs> exactly. He can't be that bad, right? What would I advise to him? I, I really, I really <laughs> don't think he needs my advice. Um, he's an open-minded guy. He wants, a, you know, an array. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that whatever – I can't imagine, you know, the life he has led or that any politician leads really. Um, so my advice to him would be um, to the degree that it will be possible as an ex-president um, to really let his voice come through. It seems like that's happening for him over the course of the last several months, almost since Charleston. I mean, you know, his sermon and singing Amazing Grace was – to me was just – he sort of walked through a door at that moment and I feel like the real voice of Barack Obama um, is uh, being articulated right now. And I would, I would say, so keep speaking, you know, your heart. That seems to be like a pretty good way to go for the next phase of your life, you know. And, and he will have, you know, several billion dollars behind him. And, uh, he'll, you know, his impact is going to be enormous, whatever he decides to do. As a rabbi and and one who's really been also involved in, in community affairs, you've had kind of a front row seat to a lot of uh, the most heated debates in the Jewish community these past years. Maybe you've even taken 
uh, part in these debates. But what I want to know is what do you think is of most concern to Jews right now in America? Not what do you think should be their mo- their biggest concern, but what is the number one concern in, that you have witnessed that is on people's mind? I would – that is such a difficult question to answer and I'll tell you why. Because – our community is so diverse um, and has so many dimensions to it as a result of, you know, all of the great things that America has offered us as a result of our assimilation and success in this society, education, as a result of our economic success, as a result of being welcomed as, there, as, the, as, as barriers have dropped, intermarriage has risen. How, how you know, who are the Jews even? Um, what is Jewish identity? So I, I say all of those as kind of qualifications to say that, I, at least as far as what I hear, um, Israel is, remains a huge source of concern uh, with large numbers of Jews turning away, with large numbers of Jews really concerned about Israel's ongoing existence. And then of those concerned with Israel's ongoing existence, there are those who fear for its democratic future and there are those who fear purely for its existence. I mean, the Middle East is a you know roiling cauldron of trouble. So there's Israel, um, and then I would say um, race. I actually think that uh, the race and the immigration question are there. Um, I think that uh, that we don't quite fully have a national voice for it, but I I hear beneath the surface like a tremendous amount of interest in, puzzlement over, um, grappling with the issues that have arisen um, over the whole question of Black Lives Matter, over the centrality that race has taken again in our public discourse. And then obviously with, you know, Trump's ridiculous, basically racist statements about immigration, you know, I wrote for, to come to the studio today, I wrote in on uh, an R train. I mean, you know, to live in New York and to recognize, you know, the various ways one can define who and what an American is. And then without immigration, what is this country? And the idea that you somehow have these people like waving an American flag and, you know, screaming about building walls and, you know, blocking immigration, it's absurd. And the American Jewish community could not exist in the way it exists without immigration. And so... I think it's there and it's it's hanging as a weight and I'm not quite sure what the articulation of it is, but it's there. Working as I do at Tablet, you know, I hear things about Jewish continuity and the concern of Jewish institutions about Jewish continuity and mm-hmm. what will happen with subsequent generations and intermarriage and so forth. Do you, is this to your mind a legitimate worry? No, the, no, it's not. Um, I see every single day uh, in so many interfaith relationships, a genuine desire to connect to deep narratives, stories, rituals, practices. The worry is, are we working hard enough at helping people make those connections? Um, you know, the ship sailed on, you know, a pure ethnic, you know, Jewish identity. That's over. And I think that the the hope of retaining ourselves as a people and our connections to our traditions uh, rides on the ability of leadership, teachers, educa- educators, institutions um, 
to build those connections among people. That, that to me, is the bigger worry. You know, you're not going to stop people from loving each other. You're not going to stop people from loving each other regardless of where they come from, what their sexuality is. So you have to adapt and recognize that the way Judaism has survived for all these thousands of years literally is based more upon our adaptability than any other factor. I believe that. Um, and the one thing that has remained true is our evolving textual tradition and the practices. We look different depending upon everywhere we've lived, um, but we tell the same stories. So to me, the logical conclusion is when when the more ignorant we become, that's when we're, we face the danger of dissolution. The, the less we practice, that's when we face the danger of dissolution. And I, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people, the, the Gentile partner in a relationship who is you know, no longer interested in practicing whatever it was that they were raised in practicing, um, who's married to, partnered with, a Jew who is ambivalent about his or her background, but is, but but is desirous of building a life of meaning and connection. I, I think that's totally true, and and we ignore that at our peril. And uh, you know, it's just the the story of who we are as a people is no longer about the story of our you know our corned beef sandwiches, and our you know our seltzers and our knishes and all these kinds of ways that we romanticize. Uh, what ethnic identity is, it, 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 you know, we can't be reduced to a sandwich. You know, there's got to be more to who we are. But how do you get people to engage with text if they haven't had a, uh, a tradition themselves of knowing this? I mean, yes, there are these texts and people can sort of grapple with them as they want and create their own traditions. But if they're coming to it out of utter ignorance, how do you get from A to B? I have the answer. Tell me. <laughs> uh Okay. First, it's biological for many people, meaning, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's generally the biological impulse to partner with someone. There is a biological impulse to uh, procreate if one so desires. So right there, there are two moments, if you will, on the life spectrum, at least, right? You start with two moments in which um, people have the need to, uh, uh, to, give shape to what it is that's at their most base impulse, right? So anyone who has a child has, I believe, a base impulse to kind of bring that child into something in the world. And you will find so many people seeking a connection to Jewish life just because they have a baby. They want a baby naming. They need a bris. Uh, they don't know whether or not they want to have a bris. Whatever it is, that's a point of connection. It's not will you join the synagogue. It's not will you sign up. It's not will you become a member. It's what's your question? What's your Jewish question? How can I help you figure that out? And once you're in dialogue with them, you're going down the road of creating a language and creating literacy and opening them up to textual traditions. And you have to be you know, very clever and deft and smart about how it is that you frame those conversations. The same thing is true when people partner up and they marry with one another. What do we want this moment in our life to look like? And the same is true when people, it's the third biological impulse, when people die. It's not really an impulse, so it could be, but that's troubling. <laughs> um, but uh, it's when people die. And again, it's the same situation. How do I frame this moment? My grandmother has died. My father has died. What does this mean? What rituals am I supposed to do? So those are opportunities is really what they are to engage people in places where those questions really truly matter. And then you're building something. And so by the same token, you know, when there's racism in cities or where there's, you know, a big argument over immigration or when it's 
pretty clear that people can't live where they want to live or aren't being paid a wage. Judaism or the Jewish tradition really does have something to say about all of those things. So if if institutions, if leaders, if teachers, if educators are responding to the questions that are at the forefront of people's minds about their lives, that's building a literacy. Uh, it's certainly giving us some hope to build a sense of literacy, you know, um, and and I think that's you know that that's kind of the direction that we ought, ought, ought to really be moving in. Sold. Um, I'm sold. Oh, okay. All right. I, I got <laughs> no, a little weak at the end there. No, no, no. no it was great. I didn't end with a rousing, you know, Hosanna or something like that. But anyways. <laughs> um, you've often posted pictures of old documents from the archives of Beth Elohim, of the Congregation hmm. Beth Elohim, on yeah, their website. Yeah. What drew you to those relics? And I know that you've studied history, that you studied history as an undergraduate and I think also in graduate school. Mm-hmm. But what is it about that particular history of that institution that moved you? Um, I'll I'll first start by responding personally. Um, I have this very uh, concrete memory of uh, sitting on my dad's living room floor in his apartment when I was fifth, sixth grade and um, going through and laying out on the floor pictures of his great-grandparents and his grandparents and uh, his time in the Second World War, you know, these black and white sepia photographs and trying to understand the way images tell a story. Like how did my dad's collection of images tell the story of who the Bachmans and the Seagulls, you know, were and are and might be, you know, and how people in the pictures sort of looked like me and my brother and sisters and didn't and how are we changing and uh, why do we dress this way and what are our practices and languages? So from an early age, I'd say I was interested in the way images are a prompt to tell the stories of who the Jews are. Um, and one of the things that I noticed when I got to Beth Elohim, well, I knew it the first time when I was there in 93 to 98 and then the second time in 2006 and onward was that uh, a lot of the images of the institution, the old images of the institution were stored away in the archives. There was there was a room. It was just the archives. It was like this mysterious place up on some old handball courts on the fifth floor that were no longer used. Um, and so I started going through them and my colleague uh, Dan Bronstein, who's a historian and a rabbi, uh, started going through them. Our archivist, we then got an archivist to celebrate our 150th anniversary, Martha Foley. So we started going through them and looking at them and understanding. Dan also was a history um, student at Wisconsin. And... Um, you know, we tried to understand the way in which this institution, as it celebrated its 150th anniversary, which it did while I was there, uh, was a demonstration of all of the ways that the Jewish people have evolved and just in America over the course of the last 150 years. And I had this kind of standard talk that I gave about how when the community was founded in 1862, Abraham Lincoln was president and blacks were enslaved and women couldn't vote. Um, and today in 2015, uh, the the senior rabbi of Beth Elohim is a woman uh, married to another woman, uh, raising a family. So life is insane, and images <laughs> tell all sorts of very interesting stories. Um, secondly, and I, I don't know who who you know turned me on to this way of looking at things, but just the gra- maybe Ben Catcher, the graphic history of the ways we tell stories. So not just the images of like photographs or paintings, but actual the ways in which 
letters have changed and shapes of letters have changed and the ways in which we represent things is also really interesting. You know, I'm reading, um, you know, in in memory of uh, E.L. Doctorow, who died this summer, I'm reading Billy Bathgate, you know, about Dutch Schultz. It's just so extraordinary. Um, But I'm very mindful of, 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 kind of Jewish forms of existence, you know, over the decades and the ways in which we tell stories. So I remember one time digging through the archive box uh, at Beth Elohim and discovering ticket stubs from Daily News-sponsored Golden Gloves boxing matches, which we held in the ballroom at wow. Beth Elohim in the, in the 30s and 40s. That's crazy. Uh, A, that the shul held the boxing matches. <laughs> you know, some people don't even realize how many great Jewish boxers there were. That's why I had the pictures of Benny Leonard and Barney Ross in my office, which now are in our dining room. And, you know, there are these – these images really tell stories, right, about who, about who, who we've been, who we are, where we're going. And, and um, I guess, you know, uh, I say this, you know, in a somewhat kind of melancholy way, I suppose – you know, we're so much more image conscious today than we ever were um, that, uh, that you know, however many letters you're allowed to put in a tweet or, you know, Instagram or this and that. So, it, you know, I was at least aware as a rabbi of the community that people would actually be drawn to images with a short explanation as, as a potential, you know, opening for a larger conversation about Jewishness, Jewish identity. So, So what's in store now for you? Good question. So, you know, I'm at the 92nd Street Y. Uh, and what are you doing And there? so the title is Director of Jewish Content and Community Ritual. Um, it's an amazing historic institution. Uh, the new leadership team is fantastic. Um, Rabbi Peter Rubenstein from Central Synagogue uh, and Henry Timms uh, is the, uh, the new executive director and a phenomenal staff. Uh, and their rootedness in the community. It's an institution that is great inside with the highest level of programming, but um, I'm learning very quickly, has deep uh, and wide reach um, throughout New York City um, in the public schools and in all sorts of interesting areas. So it's very exciting to just kind of reimagine what Jewish life can be like there, and my job is to help them help them do that. Um, and then, you know, I continue to be really engaged in questions of equality and uh, justice uh, broadly in New York that, and in Brooklyn especially that really interests me a lot. Um, so I'm spending free time still walking around neighborhoods and talking to people and meeting people in the African-American community and just, you know, learning about ways in which Look, I'm not starry-eyed about, oh, well, in the old days, the blacks and the Jews worked together on civil rights. Those were great moments. But we're living in a different paradigm now. Um, and I'm interested in finding some language for what that new paradigm would be because you've got – if you look at Brooklyn, for instance, you know, you've got Prospect Heights, Crown Heights, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Edge of Brownsville, East New York, Bushwick – um, you've got you've got large areas that are rapidly gentrifying. Then you've got Borum Hill, Clinton Hill, Fort Greene. So you've got all this gentrification going on. Large numbers of young Jews moving into these areas, um, and there is I'm seeing uh, a great sense of concern and responsibility for what that means to be living in mixed neighborhoods now, and what it means to see real estate prices go up, and what it means to bring in all sorts of different kinds of restaurants and coffee shops and all these kinds of things that aren't necessarily part of 
uh, if you will, the, the kind of long-term strategic plan for the community that's been living there for a long time. And so that the, the, the edge of that conversation really interests me a lot and, and trying to find some new ways that the Jewish community can be, um, can be engaged in a meaningful way. Andy Bachman, thank you so much for joining us. You're, thank you very much. Shana Tova, Shana Tova, to a sweet and meaningful new year. Yeah, and a new year of peace. A new year of peace for sure. Andy Bachman is the former rabbi of Congregation Beth Elohim in Brooklyn, New York, and he is now the director of Jewish Content and Community Ritual at the 92nd Street Y in New York. What is on your mind, listener? What is of great concern to you as an American, as a Jew, however you want to define yourself? We want to know. You can send us an email at podcast at tabletmag.com. You can tweet at me. I'm at Sarah Ivry. That's S-A-R-A-I-V-R-Y. I will reply. I might even retweet you. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. Thank you so much for listening to us. We appreciate it. And we also want to wish you all a very uh, healthy, happy new year. Chag Sameach. And we also want to give a special thanks to Paul Ruest, who is our engineer. Mm-hmm.